craps, poker, the one-armed bandit, games of chance, all different names to describe one thing. Gambling, which is what I'm going to be talking about in this episode. Now, I won't lie, I'm not an objective person on this subject. Not because I hate gambling, but because I am allergic to losing money. I, I went to Vegas one time. I lost $50 and I felt like I had been kicked in the stomach. And you could confirm this story with my mom, who uh, it was, my mom and dad were with me and they will confirm that uh, it, it was just, they, they talk about how funny it is, like the look on my face when I lost my little money. Um, so I'm not making that up. Like that is a very true story. They will confirm how sick I looked upon losing 50 little dollars. So am I really like just a cheapskate? I mean, possibly, yeah. Would I feel differently if the slot machines hadn't gobbled up my money and left me without so much as an interesting story to tell? Uh, almost certainly. But really, I'm not dead set against a little gambling now and again. Like I said in the last episode, I'm no Puritan. However, there are two aspects to it that I find more than a little concerning. And while I don't think I'll be breaking any intellectual ground here, I do think it's worth illustrating how our handling of gambling illustrates that we're still not ready to have a serious discussion about how to strike the delicate balance between giving people what they want and ensuring they don't harm themselves too much while trying to get it. If one job of government and society is to moderate our worst impulses, then we have a very long way to go. This is Smart Politics. I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. America's relationship with gambling, like our relationship with virtually everything, is one of extremes. From the start, we had two groups, the Puritans and everybody else. And I don't think I need to explain how each group felt. So right from the beginning, we were divided. Now, I don't have any knowledge of this, but I bet the Puritans stood on the deck of the Mayflower and were very disappointed in the activities they saw, assuming that the Navy guys back then were anything like the military guys are now. And they brought that divide with them. But unless you lived in a community that explicitly outlawed gambling, and those did exist, most places had a fairly forgiving attitude towards it. Now, maybe they didn't love it, but they mostly thought that a little fun now and again wasn't a bad thing. Of course, it didn't hurt that the state made money off it, because then, as now, state lotteries were a thing. That might shock some of you, if you think that state lotteries are a new thing, but that's not the case. And if you go back and look, you'll see that the reasons states ran them back then are the same reason states run them now. To raise money, maybe a school needs to be built. Maybe a church needs to be repaired. The government gets a little money. The citizens get to have a little fun. No harm, no foul. Right. And that was pretty much the way things were for a while. Not that there weren't problems. The early state lotteries were kind of disorganized, a little chaotic and prone to more than a little bit of cheating. 
but business kept growing anyway. Every once in a while, some fire and brimstone preacher would get on his high horse, but nobody paid much attention. I mean, what did get people's attention was when the professionals started showing up. Gambling might be fun when we all have an equal chance to win or most likely lose, but when one guy seems to always be taking everyone else's money, well, that's something else entirely. And of course, there was the reality that the sort of crowd which tended to run with gamblers was quite often of the unsavory variety. So the tables turned decisively. <laughs> Vicksburg, Mississippi was in 1835 a haven of debauchery, the allure of easy money, easy land, and riverboat gambling had turned it into a place where people came from far and wide to get rich quick. But on the 4th of July, something snapped. So the story goes that a local soldier got into an altercation with one of the professional gamblers. Following a little bit of knife play, the gambler was seized, whipped, tarred, feathered, and ordered to vacate Vicksburg. But that wasn't enough, because the next day the townspeople returned, determined to end all gambling in their fine town. So they proceeded to ransack every gaming establishment around. Now, as you might imagine, the gamblers didn't think too highly of this idea. So one of them shot and killed one of the townspeople. And as you also might imagine, the townspeople didn't take too kindly to being shot at while performing what I can only assume they thought was the Lord's work. So they raided the casino, dragged five gamblers out, gave them a very brief and undoubtedly one-sided trial and hung them. It was quite literally a lynch mob. Frontier justice indeed. But this one, small, bizarre, and rather wild incident neatly illustrates what came next. America turned against gambling. A nation of betters and drunkards decided to go straight. So gambling was out and moralizing was in, at least for a few decades, because once the nation started growing again, we started betting again until we got sick of it. Like I said earlier in this episode, and like I said last episode about our relationship with alcohol, we can't just decide what kind of country we want to be. Instead of stopping at some reasonable position in the middle, we swing from extreme to extreme, from sleepy-eyed and staring at the machine to wearing a priest collar and swearing it off completely, but never anything in between. However, for the last century, we've been on a major upswing. Following prohibition, the nation adopted a largely hands-off approach across a variety of fronts. The country, which has always had a streak of rugged individualism, became increasingly content with allowing people to do as they feel. 
Of course, there were and still are moral panics. That Puritan streak is still with us, faint as it may be. But America, for better or worse, defines itself as a place that maximizes individual freedom. But when it comes to gambling, where has that landed us? Everyone knows that gambling is big business. But even then, the exact numbers are still eye-popping. In 2022, through the first 11 months of the year, casinos and mobile gaming apps had racked up nearly $55 billion in revenue, a record-setting number with a month to spare. And that increase happened everywhere. Of the 32 commercial gaming jurisdictions, 30 of them reported year-over-year growth. And look, if it was just money you were talking about, that would be one thing. I may be cheap, but that doesn't mean I'm in a hurry to stand in somebody else's way. The issue here is that we aren't just talking about money. Unsurprisingly, our new relaxed attitude towards gambling, one that really gained traction in 2018 when the Supreme Court struck down the federal ban on states authorizing sports gambling, has resulted in the rapid rise of gambling addiction. Gambling helpline calls, they are an imperfect measurement, as pro-gambling people will be quick to tell you. But that doesn't mean they should be discounted entirely. In 2021, calls to the helpline run by the National Council on Problem Gambling rose by 43%. Text messages increased by 59%. And chats jumped 84%. Now, you could maybe explain some of this by saying, well, more awareness of the problem means more calls. But you'd have to be very naive to believe that explains more than a small percentage. The most likely explanation is that our newfound love affair with gambling has led to a subsequent spike in gambling addiction. And like I said, we're not just talking about money. According to a Swedish study performed over an 11-year period, problem gamblers have a 15 times higher risk of suicide when compared to the general population. But that's not all. The National Institute of Justice is the research arm of the Department of Justice. 19 years ago, before the recent surge in gambling, they published a report titled, quote, Gambling and crime among arrestees, exploring the link, end quote. And I'm going to quote some of their findings directly. Quote, more than 30% of pathological gamblers who have been arrested in Las Vegas and Des Moines reported having committed a robbery within the past year, nearly double the percentage for low-risk gamblers. Nearly one-third admitted that they had committed the robbery to pay for gambling or to pay gambling debts. In addition, about 13% said they had assaulted someone to get money. One in four assaults reported by pathological gamblers was directly or indirectly related to gambling. By comparison, low-risk, at-risk, or problem gamblers reported committing gambling-related robberies infrequently, end quote. So the study was only limited to those two cities. Vegas, because of how much gambling it had, 
and Des Moines because it was a more typical city. But now every city is trying to become more like Vegas, aided by the incredible rise in ad spending. I mean, seriously. Caesars has an ad with the Manning family. DraftKings has an ad with Kevin Hart, David Ortiz, Emmett Smith, Lisa Leslie, and Julius Irving. Now, some of you may not know who some of those people are, but Manning, football player, David Ortiz, baseball, Emmett Smith, football, Lisa Leslie, WNBA, and Julius Irving, uh, also uh, NBA. And I get that the ads are funny. That's why they got a guy like Kevin Hart. But doesn't anybody find it odd to see former athletes shilling for sports gambling? The Chicago Black Sox scandal of 1919 should remind somebody that there's a very real reason we built such a high wall between sports and gambling in the first place. Sports podcasts, which I listen to some, are packed to the brim with gambling ad reads. Prestigious journalists, household names in the business, devote minutes at a time to reading scripts intended to turn their listeners into gamblers. And you may not think it's immoral, that's fine. But the speed with which states and the sports industry have cozied up with gambling is extremely weird. And if it's any indication of how we're going to handle similar issues, then I do think we should all be more than a little freaked out. And the stakes really are very high. As always, I want to encourage you, the audience, to continue the discussion on Facebook and Instagram. Like all of our shows here, this podcast is brought to you in part by Eliag Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians and Pointcast News. To listen to our podcast or read our latest articles, you can visit our website at pointcast.news or subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and make sure you join us next time.